a couple things have gone wrong this morning. Uh, Bob, there's a hole in my waders. All right? My pant leg is wet right here. So we made a note. It's not the worst I've ever gotten getting into baptistry, though. I did have once when the water came over and soaked me. So, But the Lord knew when he said baptize them that it was going to be interesting. He just knew it would, and it's always been. Baptisms are always interesting. You can see them on television and in movies and all that. It's just it's an interesting thing. It's dramatic. It's memorable. You'll remember it the rest of your life when you're baptized in front of the church of Jesus Christ. You go under that water. It is powerful. It's a moment to remember. I remember when I was a boy being baptized in a Crow Wing River in Minnesota. It was freezing cold. I remember that. It must have been a melted ice pack that made that river. And you just always remember. That went wrong, and then I went in the men's Bible class. I don't know. David Birdsong ought to be in charge of this. Maybe Bobby Eason. But there is that chocolate-covered donut with the sprinkles on it. I'm telling you, it's the temptation. I intended to start the tested series last week, but I got to thinking about it. Maybe I should start it this week. Because is there anything to test us more than really yummy food? And that's what happened to me. I went in there and I had a donut for breakfast, okay? I'm confessing to you. And, uh, and I enjoyed it, by the way. I believe you're supposed to receive all these good gifts of God with thanksgiving, as I will mention in a moment. So there's a couple things. I haven't been able to stop thinking about gluttony since I announced I was going to preach on it. Think of every time I've sat down at the table, I thought about this sermon for weeks. Can't hardly eat anything without thinking about gluttony, one of the seven deadly sins. The tested series formally starts next week. And for this period through Easter, I'm going to talk to you about how we are tested. The test of sorrow. If you've not experienced deep sorrow or pain in your life, you will. And it will be a test of your faith and your relationship with God. It was for Jesus in Gethsemane, the test of sorrow. We are tested. The test of betrayal. The test of abandonment. The test of mockery. The test of injustice. All these things happen to us. Jesus illustrates in his trial and his crucifixion how we deal with these tests that come our way. And today could be the test of food. It could be. And I realize I am in the food capital, not just of the country, but of the world. And you are looking at the best fed preacher in America. When I go places and I say I'm the pastor at First Baptist New Orleans and they want to pat me on the shoulder, I say, the best fed preacher in America. No better food in all the world than right here, but we do not get a pass on the seventh deadly sin, okay? We got to deal with it just like everybody else on the planet. It is part of what we must do. I know Mardi Gras just happened. I understand that. But it is Lent, it is the perfect time to talk about the discipline that we exercise at the table. So that's 
what we're going to do. Now, through the seven deadly sins, I have chosen a narrative in First and Second Samuel that illustrates the sin. We started back there with pride and David and Bathsheba. We talked about lust and greed and sloth in relation to what happened with David and Bathsheba and the killing of Uriah. And then we drop back a little bit to talk about envy and anger from the narrative about Saul and David. You remember? And we went back to 1 Samuel to look at that narrative and where Saul got so envious and so angry at his adversary, David. And now today we're going to drop back even further in the books of Samuel to the second chapter of 1 Samuel. Go ahead and find it. It's in your Old Testament. There are six books in a row that really show the history of Israel as a monarchy. And they are the books of Samuel, Kings and Chronicles, and they cover several hundred years of the nation's history. And it begins with a priest named Samuel, for whom the first two books are named. And Samuel is so important in that he anoints Saul and David. Samuel is really the kingmaker in Israel. God speaks to him, and he pours the anointing oil on the one God has chosen. He's the kingmaker. And it makes all the difference in the world for David and for, Samuel, uh, for Saul to have the anointing oil on their head. So Samuel is very, very important. And the first chapter of 1 Samuel is about his parents, Elkanah and Hannah. There is another wife of Elkanah, Peninnah. And she has children, but Hannah does not have children, and it is a great grief to her. They go to the house of worship at Shiloh in this part of the nation's history. Shiloh is not Jerusalem. It is northeast of Jerusalem. It is in the hill country given to Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim. And they go there to worship the Lord. And when they go, Eli is the priest in Israel. He is the most important religious authority in the nation. And he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Now, some bad things are happening at the house of worship. And we're going to read about those beginning in 1 Samuel chapter 2, where the scripture says in verse 12, right at the end of verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Can you believe that? A summary statement about these priests that are to minister on behalf of the people before God, and they had no regard for the Lord. Now, verse 13 of chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. This is not how the book of Leviticus said they were to do it. It's how they treated all the worshipers. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. 
If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, that is a religious protest on behalf of the God who's commanded the sacrifice. They're not saying, please don't steal from me. They're saying, this is not right. This doesn't follow the instructions of the Lord. This is a sacrifice given to God. The priests are stealing from them. The servant would say, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now skip down to verse 27. Now a man of God came to Eli. Here's a man of God who comes to Eli and said to him, this is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings, all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice? and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling. Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Well, the charge continues. The man of God continues to say to Eli, what God's judgment is on his family. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas have food issues. They're stealing in the house of the Lord. And what are they stealing? They're stealing the steaks. They want the porterhouse. They want the prime rib. They want the tenderloin. They don't want just what they can get in the prescri prescription of uh, Leviticus. They want the best. They want more. God says to them, didn't I promise you all this stuff? Isn't all the food that is sacrificed here for you all and for your families? Why are you stealing from me? Life is more than food. That's number one. Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas have food issues for sure. But you know, Hannah had a food issue. Did you pick up on it? If you read the first chapter, Hannah is so grieved because she has no children. And she goes into the house of worship weeping and mumbling her prayers. And Elkanah, her husband, says to her, he loves her so much, he says to her, am I not better to you than ten sons? He wants to help somehow with the pain that is in her heart. And the Bible says that she was so in distress that she would not eat. She wouldn't eat. Hannah had her own food issue. You see, we eat to live. We don't live to eat. 
And Hannah needs to eat to keep up her strength and do what she's called to do. But she doesn't feel like food. Maybe it's repulsive to her right now. Elkanah is trying to intervene to get his wife to eat. Now Eli sees Hannah praying in the house of worship. The scripture says that Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas fattened themselves on the Lord's offerings. They made themselves fat on the Lord's offerings. The scripture says that Eli was so huge when he got the bad news that his sons had died, he fell over backward and the chronicler says that he broke his neck, he killed himself because he was such a heavy man when he fell. He sees Hannah. Her lips are moving but he hears no sound and he thinks that she is drunk. I don't know why he thinks she is drunk. He rails at her. Woman, give up your wine. And she says, no, that's not the problem. But I think Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas are so focused on food and drink that for them, everything comes down to that. We have food issues too. They're as common as human culture, communities, and individuals. We struggle when we come to the table. We have difficulty restraining ourselves. Sometimes our issues are we just don't want to eat, and that's not good for us. And sometimes our issue is that we eat until we make ourselves sick, until the nutrition becomes poison to us, and that's not good for us. Jesus taught us that we are to focus not on food or on clothes, but on the kingdom. When people worried about food and clothes, he said to them, look at the sparrows. They're not sowing and harvesting and putting their crops in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? He said, and why are you worried about clothes? Why are, you, why are you focused on clothes? Have you looked at a flower lately? Have you seen the lily in the field? It springs up and grows, and it's gone in a little bit. But even Solomon, Jesus said, in all his glory, was not so beautifully dressed as one of these flowers. If God cares for the f flower and the sparrow, will he not care for you? O oh, ye of little faith. Jesus ends this discussion about food and clothes by saying to us, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. There is a solution to the fixation on clothes or food or drink. And it is to change your focus from the stuff that you can see and consume to the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness, to be a person who is spiritually minded. That's the call of Jesus. That's what he instructs us to do. And he says if we'll change our focus, all these other things will be added unto us. The truth of the matter is, Jesus is Lord, and we are Jesus' people. And life is not just about food. It's about peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And we must, as followers of Jesus, place our eating under the lordship of Christ. Now, this is the great thing that every follower of Jesus, where you Go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. You're my Lord, and you are over me, and I will follow you. I want to convince you this morning that the food problem is a spiritual problem, that it's about the heart, not just about the stomach. Because as long as you resist the truth, that the food problem is a spiritual problem. God can't bring you victory in that area of your life. It's very clear in the scripture that what happens to us is the heart gets sick. The spiritual heart gets in trouble first before you have cardiovascular problems from overeating or from eating poorly. Before your physical body is affected, something else has happened. The scripture records Jesus as saying, it's not the outside stuff that defiles a man. It is from within, out of a person's heart, that all these wicked things come. They come from inside. And that's what defiles a person. Guard your heart. See the eating issue as a spiritual problem. Bring it under the lordship of Christ. If you will see it as a spiritual problem, the Holy Spirit will enable you in the struggle you have with eating well and eating right. Say, I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a physician, I'm not a psychologist. I just get this book out every week and I deliver a message from what God says in the book. I do that because I'm a follower of Jesus and Jesus is Lord. When Melissa went into the water over here, her confession is Jesus is Lord. Everything is under his lordship. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And that's true about food. I'm not saying that you should not rejoice in God's good gifts. Quite the opposite. We ought to respect God's good gifts. They are wonderful to us. When we meet together for Thanksgiving feast in my big family, last time we met we had 150 people. We have to rent a church building to have our thanksgiving. And when we meet together, we break out in a song. In fact, last Sunday, I was dedicating five 
little babies with the last name Crosby. Four of them were uh, great-grandchildren of my father and mother, and one of them was a grandchild. This makes 67 grandchildren, and I think 57 great-grandchildren of my mother and dad. My mother's still living, okay? So there were five little Crosbys, and it ended up that seven of the nine boys were there along with one of the girls. So we had a pretty good gathering. Afterward, we gathered in the fellowship hall, and we had a meal together, and while we were just sitting around, one of my brothers started singing Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites his chosen people, come and dine. With his manna he doth feed and supplies our every need. Oh, tis sweet to sup with Jesus all the time. Come and dine, the master calleth, come and dine. You can feast at Jesus' table any time. He who fed the multitude turned the water into wine. To the hungry call it now, come and dine. We sing that every time we get together. It's how we celebrate the fact that God provides. And we pray and give thanks for the, for the food that is given. And that is all good and proper. We need to enjoy God's good gifts. And I enjoyed that donut. The scripture says, everything God gives is clean if it is, what? Received with thanksgiving. So God gives good gifts, and I'm not stepping on that, and I'm not saying you shouldn't enjoy the good food. It's one of the delights God gives us, and it is indeed a good part of life. But it's not the summation of life. It's not why we're alive. It's not all about life. It is bringing this to under the lordship of Jesus Christ because I'm seeking his kingdom and his righteousness first above all things. I want to please him in everything I do. Making him lord of my eating is part of my spiritual discipline. The scripture says that one of the things God produces in us is self-control. Did you ever notice that one of the dimensions of the fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 5 is self-control? So there's to be a temperance, a restraint in our lives. Now there are some people through all these generations who have misunderstood the grace of God. Jude tells us that they are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. They convert the grace of God into a license for immorality. And the word immorality is really indulgence and excess. In other words, they say, because we are saved by grace, because I've already got a home in heaven, and God has given me this free gift of salvation, it doesn't matter how I live, it doesn't matter what I do, I can live any way I want, there are no rules, there is no law. And in the very beginning of the Christian Faith, when, when Jesus had just delivered it to the apostles, people began to say that. <coughs> I'm going to need some water. See, you got to eat and drink, you know, sometimes. And let me, let me get a little water here. 
thank God for the man who brings me a bottle of water every Sunday. He brings it to me along with a little uh, energy bar. And he puts it right over there. See, I can't escape food and drink. It's everywhere, isn't it? It's everywhere. I'm talking to you about restraint. I have a four-year-old grandson who got his cookie from his mother and father. Joshua told me that this week. This is a story from my son this week. Bennett's four years old. He goes into the bedroom with his cookie. In a minute, he comes back. His lip is all bulging out and trembling. He's on the verge of tears. And he says to his mom and dad, I lost my cookie. I lost my cookie. And his mother and dad are understandably upset. The poor boy lost his cookie. So they go back into the bedroom to look for the lost cookie. They look everywhere for the lost cookie. They can't find the lost cookie anywhere. And then this thought dawns on these parents who believe the child still may be perfect. Wait, could the little boy, the four-year-old, be running a con on us? So they go back in and they probe him with a few more questions and discover that he ate the cookie and he wanted another one. And this is the way he was going to get one. You see, his desire for a cookie led him to lie. Now, yeah, 40 years old and running a con for a cookie. Eli's sons were stealing the meat at the altar. Restraint is part of what God's doing in my life and your life. It is part of the gospel. It's not a life without restraint. It's a, not a life where you say, I'll indulge myself because I have the money and I can do what I want and I like this and I'm going to do it. And you can see even with the demeanor of rising up and saying, I'm going to do it because I want to do it. And nobody's going to tell me otherwise. I'm going to get my cookie. I'm going to eat what I want to. That there is a rebellion in my heart about it. And part of what God's developing in you is self-restraint. Now, the benefits of self-restraint, of saying, Lord, I understand that if, if I'm going to come after you, I must, number one, what? Deny myself. Anyone who comes after me must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, self-denial is part of the good news of Jesus Christ. And to indulge yourself is to lose real life. To give your life over to Christ is to discover life. It's backwards. It feels backwards. It feels like if you get what you demand and what you want every time, that that's going to deliver life to you. But it doesn't. It perverts God's good gift in excess. And it turns to poison, what is supposed to be nutrition. It makes compulsive what is supposed to be a joy. And you get through gorging yourself and you feel bad and there's no joy in it. And you reflect back on it and think, why in the world? 
that I stuff myself like that. I know the stuff's not good for me. It doesn't deliver on its promise, you see. The food can't fill up what's empty inside. Only Jesus can fill that hole. You were made for him. You were designed for him. And self-restraint is the confession that Jesus, I am satisfied with you. And you are what I need above all things. And I am willing to curb my appetite and live within limits that are healthy and good for me. Because you are Lord and I love you and you satisfy my soul. Life's not about food. When it gets about food, something got sick, not at the table, but in the heart. Something's wrong in here. Placing Jesus' lordship over food is part of our responsibility. Let me give you five disciplines I want you to practice, okay? These are things you can do as a pattern of life. If you want to, you can follow these five things during the Lenten season and say, okay, this is what we're going to do, okay? Here's number one. Ask God for food. Petition God for food. You say, Crosby, you live in the land of abundance. It really flows like milk and honey here. Our supermarkets are the envy of the world. There are piles of food everywhere. Why would I ask God for food? Well, I have one big reason. When the disciples said, teach us to pray, Jesus said, when you pray, say, give us this day our what? Daily bread. Whether you're rich, whether you're poor, whether you're hungry or whether you're full, whether the cupboard has lots or the cupboard has little, every day we pray, Lord, provide the food I need. It is an acknowledgement. See, God doesn't want you to be proud about what you got, who you are, how you can do stuff. God instead wants you to confess every day that he is Lord, he is sovereign God, and every good thing in your life is a gift from him. That's worship. That's daily worship. That's the right disposition of life, and it is correct and proper to say, Lord, provide what I need today on this table. Give us this day our daily bread. Receive food with thanksgiving. That's number two. Petition God for your food. Receive food with thanksgiving. The scripture says everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. When Jesus took the bread at the Last Supper, the first thing he did was give thanks. He took the cup. What did he do? He gave thanks. Giving thanks will cultivate the spirit of gratitude that ought to be in your heart about all things. Number three. Eat in moderation. You can turn God's good gifts into poison. Any good thing can be perverted. 
We just read about guys who took the grace of God and turned it into a license for immorality. Now that's twisting something that is pure, wonderful, and good. God's grace. And you can do that with anything, including food. Food is good. It is God's good gift. But you can pollute it and pervert it. So eat in moderation. When I posted this on Facebook that I was going to preach on gluttony, I had a barrage of interest. Lots of people making comments. There was lots of humor in it. It was really good. It was really good. But... Uh, one of the things that they were pointed at was how food gets into our lives and, and tugs at us and gets its hold on us. Eating in moderation is a practice of self-restraint. Eat with wisdom. You already know how to do this. The world is full of good counsel from people who know what they're talking about in regard to nutrition. We know what's good for us. We know what's not. The reason we eat what's not good for us is because we like it. That's why. And we eat it and we know it's not good for us, but we like it. Practice moderation and wisdom so that you will be longer on the planet, more healthy as you age, more able to maximize this body God gave you for the sake of the good news of the kingdom of God. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells within you. You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. God owns that body. So you treat that body with respect as a steward. One of these days, that body's going to break down. I know it's going to break down. This body here is going to break down. I had, a, had someone ask me this week, will you say a few words at my funeral? I did not say to her, oh, you're going to live a long time. Don't worry about your funeral. I know better. I said, I'll be glad to speak some words at your funeral. Everybody dies. No matter how good your discipline is at eating and exercise, everybody dies. Sometimes people who are very disciplined get sick early and die young. That's just true. Sometimes people who are undisciplined live a long time like Eli did. He lived a long time. Even in his undisciplined life and a life of excess. But as a general rule, if you will eat in moderation and eat with wisdom and practice self restraint when you come to the table, you will be healthier and more useful to the people who love you and the God who made you for a longer period of time. You'll be able to give back more because you're going to stay healthy longer. As a general rule, these daily Disciplines of eating and food and drinking are the way that we get to better health. Now, when we get sick, we pray for God's miracle. 
We pray that God will intervene, and God does, and he delivers miracles, praise his name. Every miracle is a gift of grace, right? We don't deserve these miracles, but it is the daily discipline that more than any other thing determines how this body is going to handle the process of age. No guarantees, but that is the wisdom of Proverbs. The fifth thing, do it together as a family and friendship group. This is important. If your spouse is not willing to go along with the new routine, it is hard to keep it going. It is easiest when your friends and your family say, okay, we realize this is a, something that needs to be exercised with discipline. We need Jesus to be Lord over what happens at this table. We are all in on this, and we're going to do it together. When we go to the grocery store, when we prepare the meal, we're going to eat together in a healthy way that honors God. If we do it together, it's a joy. There's delight in it. There's accountability instead of doing it solo. The table's a wonderful place where we enjoy the chatter of our family and friends, enjoy the fellowship of people who love us and whom we love. It's also a wonderful place to practice your spiritual life, to practice the Lordship of Christ and to say, God, you are Lord. Now listen, the scripture says that these priests, Hophni and Phinehas, stole from God. They took the offering that belonged to God and they made themselves fat on that offering. I want to conclude with this one thought. Don't you make yourself fat. Don't you engage in excess on that which belongs to God. Part of the reason we cannot be generous is because we become self-indulgent. Part of the reason there's nothing left to give is because we spend it all on ourselves. It's the ugly truth. And the spiritual discipline of learning to regard God and others with that which he has entrusted to me is central to obedience to Christ. Let's bow together. Lord, we pray today that you would take this very personal message with many very individual and personal applications. God, that you would take it by your Holy Spirit to the person who heard it and needs it in their own particular way. So God, help us respond in wisdom and in obedience to what your Holy Spirit is doing with this word. God, I pray that you will help us be the godly, disciplined, holy people you've called us to be. Thank you for Jesus, that his grace is sufficient for us. In his name we pray, amen.